and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. I was recently a guest on a radio show called Interfaith Dish. This show brings people from different cultures, beliefs, and traditions together to talk about our commonalities and our differences. I was on the show with Alicia McBride, Director of Quaker Leadership at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. We talked about U.S.-Iran relations, the possibility of the revival of a nuclear deal and general nuclear diplomacy between the two countries, and the movement for nuclear disarmament around the world. The show is called Interfaithish and is hosted by Jack Gordon. Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, with the unresolved conflict between Ukraine and Russia still dominating the news, the threat of nuclear war looms large in the minds of people around the world. Add to that the stalled conversation around a nuclear deal between Iran and the U.S., And there's a high level of anxiety about how many countries have or could have the capability to bring the world to the brink of annihilation. Today on our show, we'll discuss what are the moral and ethical questions at play when it comes to developing nuclear programs and the case for disarmament. Joining me to discuss these topics are Negar Mortazavi, an Iranian-American journalist and political analyst who is also the host of the Iran podcast, and Alicia McBride. Director of Quaker Leadership at the Friends Committee on National Legislation, or FCNL. Enjoy my conversation with Alicia and Negar. Thank you both so much for taking the time to to be with me. I know this is... uh, a time that I'm sure is very busy for the both of you with everything that's going on in the in the world and everything. So it's it's great to be able to have a bit of your time. Alicia, can you can you tell us a little bit about what your upbringing was like and and uh, and how you engage with the Quaker community? Sure. So I grew up in Midwestern college towns. Uh, my father was a physics professor. And then we moved to Northern Virginia when he got a job working for the government when I was in elementary school. And my parents were religious people, but they were not really deeply rooted in any specific faith. Um, They joined the Episcopal Church when they got married, having come out of other faith traditions. Um, And that is the faith that I was raised in and the churches that I attended through high school. And I really liked the music and the ritual of the church. I played in the handbell choir. Um, But really what I think I got most out of it was this sense of belief as connected to action. Um, The part of religion was about providing a moral framework uh, to make choices from. And so then when, um, when I was in high school, we stopped attending church for a variety of reasons and didn't go to church regularly for a few years until I was in college. And I, you know, I sort of missed that anchor 
But I, I like to say my parents were seekers, um, continuing to, to think about religion. And they really hadn't given up on religion itself, just on the, on the church that we had stopped attending. So when I was in college, I came home for Thanksgiving um, my sophomore year, and my mom said, I'm going to go to a Quaker meeting. Do you want to come with me? And that was my first um, experience at a Quaker meeting. We went to Herndon Friends meeting in Virginia. And um, that is what is known as an unprogrammed meeting. So there's no pastor, there's no clergy person. Um, The group worships by gathering together in silence until someone feels they have something to share. And this was a, a new experience for me. I didn't really know what to expect or what to do in the silence. But it was also a time where I was struggling with some decisions and challenges. And during that hour, I actually found some new clarity about what I needed to do. Um, so it was it was a powerful experience. And then when I went back to college, I connected with a Quaker meeting in, in the community where I was living in Minnesota. Um, and that really became an important way that I found community um, in, in those years when I was in college. And really that's how I got connected to Quakers and sort of set down on my current path. Um, and, you know, reflecting on why I stuck with it, why it, why that experience was so powerful. Um, I think part of it is that I'm not a very patient person and my mind moves really fast and I like to plan things out. And all of those are things that Quakerism works against, um, you know, being in this group of people sitting in silence, waiting for that little nudge to be like, do you have something to say? Should I say something? Maybe even not knowing when you stand up to speak, like what you're actually going to say out of the silence. Those are all things that really don't come very easy to me. And in some ways, I think I've stayed connected to Quakerism because it helps me work on the things that that I know that I benefit from working on, but but are not sort of where I'm going to wind up if, if left to my own devices. It sort of stretches me in that way. Mm. Well, that that uh, call to be engaged in the world, but also be mindful about your actions or before you speak, I think those are those are good good lessons that I think our world could probably learn from in this particular moment. So I can I can see um, how you're drawn to the the work then of um, FCNL. Um, Negard, I, I, I'm curious also also for you, do you have any any sort of uh, family history with one particular uh, tradition or, or anything that that um, that you identify with in your present life? Well, my story is interesting, and I've seen people surprised about hearing it. Obviously, I was born and raised in Iran, a majority Shia Muslim country with a religious uh, government. I was born after the revolution, so grew up in the Islamic Republic, where religion is very present, and Islam specifically, the official religion, is very present in every aspect of life, and essentially you have to, you're mandated to follow um, religious uh, rules and guidances to some extent. But that also creates a sort of an opposite effect. And I don't want to claim Mm. that this is for everybody, but there is a considerable uh, community, maybe more of a middle class, urban, secular community where I grew up in. So essentially, I grew up in a non-religious family. Um, mm-hmm. mostly around non-religious people. And um, to some extent, and this wasn't the case for me or my family, but the, to some extent, the forced religion by the state creates an opposite effect. And mm-hmm. you end up with 
a considerable part of the population actually running away from religion, even from its values, because I see value in uh, sort of global and universal um, virtues in in all religions. Uh, but it's it just creates that opposite effect. And I, I experienced that growing up in a middle class, secular neighborhood in Tehran, seeing a lot of opposition uh, to religion, specifically because it was forced from, um, you know, visible uh, aspects of it, like having to wear hijab, having to follow mandatory hijab, even if you're not a hijabi, which nobody in my family was. Um, mm-hmm. to having to sort of, uh, to some extent, pretend to have a double life. So it wasn't okay um, to be very loud in public, for example, at school about your non-religious family, the presence of, you know, non-religious mm. elements um, in your house. So um, all of that was just very interesting dynamics. I do, I want to emphasize that I do have religious people in my family, which we all love and respect. Um, actually, one side of my family, the descendants are uh, very religious and traditional. So I'm, mm-hmm. I have seen that aspect of the Iranian uh, social life, but my immediate family is not religious, has not been religion, and most of my friends were again that secular middle class Tehran type. But then, when I moved to the U.S. and this is at age twenty, it was very interesting for me because you have this different view um, from a distance. And I actually lived in Europe also for two years um, mm-hmm. before, and you, I, I continue to be surprised by the much stronger than I expected presence of religion in American life. Because from a distance, you assume it's a secular society, it's a secular government, both state and um, society. So this idea of the complete separation of religion and state um, that you, in a way, aspire to when you're living in a very religious state um, has just surprised me from, um, I've, you know, I've lived here for 20 years, but I still um, get introduced to different um, traditions and norms, and I still continue to be surprised. Not in a bad way, not in a bad way, but I'm just saying I, I see the presence of religion more than I expected to see it. And that's just a, in a way, it always it, it has a familiar um, feeling because I continue to realize we're actually less different than we assume from a distance. Mm-hmm. Well, I can see that uh, that journalists' curiosity there at work then, and you're <laughs> in uh, investigating and being being surprised by that. Well, I'll share that I'm. Um, I'm I'm from a, a a multi-faith background. I grew up in a household that's um with a strong Jewish identity with a certain portion of the family that's Christian um but also Baha'i. And so I'm actually a practicing Baha'i at this point in in my life and and that's part of the connection to the to the Iranian um community here in the DC area and knowing some Iranian friends. Um Cool. So, all right. So, pivoting slightly to <laughs> to uh, to uh, uh, a more serious uh, topic, 
Um, I appreciate you all sharing a little bit about about your backgrounds. Um, but one of the things that I, I wanted to have the opportunity to to talk to you both today about was around this I, I you know this idea that's really in the news right now, a, a lot of anxiety around um, nuclear war in a way that that maybe our generation hasn't um, experienced um, uh, in the in coming up somewhat after the cold war what 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 that looks like how does it feel like really with the um with the war in ukraine as as uh perhaps even a a, a very clear and present danger uh in a way that it hasn't reared its head and in, in the years previous to this so um i think that part of it part of the anxiety comes from from it's a bit difficult to track exactly where we are and the and the and the scenario seems to be changing a lot and and certainly here in the US I think there's maybe not not quite sure about who the players are and what the level of threat is and then if you look at a list like um one that the Union of Concerned Scientists published around around who are countries that actually have nuclear weapons it includes Russia, the US, China, France, the UK, Pakistan, India, Israel, North Korea. Um, but then we're hearing a lot that Ukraine has nuclear weapons, had nuclear weapons, they denuclearized. You know, I think that there's there's um, maybe a lot of... And then, of course, you throw Iran into the mix and 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 there's a lot of misinformation or, or unclear information about where Iran sits with its nuclear program. So... Um, I really just wanted to 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 start there and get sort of an understanding from the both of you um, about where you see this issue. Um, Alicia, I'll just talk start with you and 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 really take it back and say like context wise, why is is the issue of nuclear weapons and particularly the the idea of disarmament such a key issue for um, for Quakers? And, and for your organization, FCNL. Yeah. So as we're starting to talk about Quakers, there are a couple of points I just want to make. Um, one is that my organization, FCNL, Friends Committee on National Legislation, um, does not speak for all Quakers, either in the U.S. or the world. Um, we are governed by Quakers from 26 regional bodies and seven national Friends organizations. Um, but, you know, I can only speak for the, the Quakers that have chosen to, to participate in the work that we do. Um, and along with that, you know, just as FCNL doesn't speak for all Quakers, neither do I. Um, Quakerism is a very experiential faith, and it's it's really about an individual's um, connection to the divine, to God. And you know, Quakers often talk about how there's that of God in everyone, and that's a, a real central belief. Um, and it's a faith about continuing revelation. You know, God continues to speak to people today and and provide new uh, insight and guidance. Uh, and so exactly what Quakerism is or what Quakers believe is very personal. There's not a catechism or a pope or someone to tell you, like, what's the right or the wrong way to do it. So, um, you know, there's some caveats in terms of generalization about Quakers and Quakerism I just want to put out there um, so that, you know, I'm definitely speaking from my experience on this, um, but other Quakers might have different understandings. Um, so just starting, starting with that. Um, but to get to your question about um, sort of nuclear disarmament and, and Quakers, um, there are really, I think, three pieces to that answer. So the first is this idea that 
you know, as I said, each person having a connection to the divine is really foundational to Quakers work for peace and against violence. That goes back to the very beginning of uh, the faith in 17th century England, where Quakers told King Charles II that we utterly deny all outward wars and strive in fighting with outward weapons. And it's really, you know, if every person has a piece of God, then to act against another in a violent manner removes that piece of God from the earth. And that's a pretty significant um, action to take. And this, what's sometimes known as the peace testimony, has grown to encompass both the individual decisions about participation um, in, in war and conflict and also collective work um, that FCNL is engaged in to reduce military budgets, you know, focus on diplomacy, build the institutions that are promoting peace. Um, and that makes disarmament, nuclear and otherwise, a really key issue, um, you know, taking away the, the implements through which people enact violence on each other. Um, and also a real sense that, <clears throat> you know, you can't get to peace through violence, that peace is really only possible through peaceful means. Um, but, you know, I think nuclear weapons and nuclear abolition is is a real special clear case because of such existential threat that they pose um, to human existence. It's both immoral and irrational to threaten mass civilian casualties and risk planetary annihilation. Um, you know, if you're talking about being against violence against an individual person, that, that sort of takes violence to a much more extreme place. So, so that's some of the basis for the, the focus on nuclear disarmament. And, and what is FCNL uh, calling on, for example, the U.S. government to do specifically since it has an, an active uh, uh, stockpile of, of weapons? Yeah. So our priority is nuclear abolition. Um, we believe that true peace cannot be achieved as long as these weapons exist. Um, but obviously, that is uh, not a step we're going to get to in, in one fell swoop. And there's a lot of conversation about that. Um and I'll just say that, you know, FCNL was founded in 1943, so in the middle of World War II. Um, and so one mm. of the first, you know, significant international issues that it had to face was when the, the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so this has really been an issue that has um, been a very consistent in terms of, of the advocacy that, that FCNL has been doing. Um and, and I think it's not just about getting rid, you know, it's not just about being against something and getting rid of it. It's, it's really um, a sense that we have to think about how we address conflict and global challenges in new ways and, and having these sort of horrific um, weapons out there and, and part of the conversation makes the, that conversation more difficult. Um, you know, our policy statement that sort of guides all of our work talks about having a new vision for how the world community can live together more peacefully and justly. And I think um, we see nuclear weapons as a real impediment to that new vision. Um, but some of mm -hmm. the specific things that we're working on towards that end um, are really getting the government to limit the chances of nuclear escalation. So while we're working on getting rid of them, also keeping them from being used. I was talking with our, our nuclear weapons lobbyist, Alan, yesterday, and, and he was really saying that, you know, the situation we're in with Russia and Ukraine, this is exactly the kind of situation we've been worrying about, where, 
you know, there's between them, the US and Russia have 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. Any step that anyone takes could get us closer on the path to a nuclear conflict. Um, and, and also, you know, Alan was saying about how the presence of nuclear weapons sort of emboldens a leader like Putin to feel like he can act without worrying about other people coming in and, and stopping him because he has this sort of ultimate weapon. Um, so really educating and, and talking to policymakers about the inherent risks of these weapons existing and the ways that they sort of warp conflict and um, really prevent this idea of, of real security because they pr create this cycle of fear and distrust that make it harder to have diplomatic conversations that can actually resolve things more peacefully. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, certainly in a, in a sort of political science or, or, you know, policy sense, sometimes these issues can feel very uh, theoretical or removed. Um, and so we're also doing work that really tries to center the human lives involved in this work um, and, and mm. around these issues. Um, and, you know, we, part of our lobbying is about how do we listen to the people who have survived past atomic bomb detonations and tests, uh, particularly even in, you know, there've been more than a thousand atomic bomb tests in the U.S. over, you know, the past century and really working to extend restitution to people who have been exposed um, to that radiation while also trying to prevent new instances of that harm from, from happening to other people. Thank you. So we're we're obviously not in a a country that's that's primarily driven by uh, Quaker values, <laughs> and and so government policy isn't informed by um, that same principled perspective um, as as the friends um, and uh, you know might argue uh, that it would it would be of benefit to our country to to follow these principles. Um, but in in Iran, if we look at Iran. The government is an Islamic theocracy, and so Negar, I'm I'm curious from your perspective, how do the the beliefs um, that the Iranian leadership um, have and 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 um, push forward uh, influence the country's decisions about how it develops its nuclear program, given the the issues of morality and ethics that are at play there? Right. Um, so let me first. Um explain from a strategic or geopolitical view because there's I think sometimes there are these two very opposite and very radical um, portrayals of the Iranian government Islamic Republic of Iran that one assumes that everything is completely dictated by uh, religion and um, you know the Shia uh, crescent and this um, idea, this completely religious perspective to the world. I, I don't think that's accurate. And then there's another yeah. one that's all about, um, you know, the the mullahs being the opposite of everything the religion teaches you, and you know they lie and cheat and kill, and it's all about the opposite. I think that's also too radical. I think the Islamic Republic, obviously, it's an Islamic Republic, and as I said, religion has a very strong presence in the decision making of the state, with the caveat that this is more of a Shia state, and I'm not a religious scholar, and I don't want to get into a religious. Um, discussion here, but just a very quick uh, explanation that 
the two major schools of thought in Islam, Shia and Sunni, their main difference is that Sunni, which comes from Sunnah, which means tradition, uh, is basically the idea of following the exact tradition of the Prophet from 13, 14, 1400 years ago. And Shia um, is the school of thought, and that's why the the role of the clergy or the supreme leader in the Islamic Republic and all of that is very prominent in Shias because these scholars, these religious scholars and clergies are supposed to study religion and society in their own uh, contemporary times and reinterpret religion based on mm. current needs and you know advances in science and technology now how much iran the islamic republic is that right now i don't want to get into that discussion it's for another day but basically what i'm trying to say is that the shia school of thought provides some room for reinterpretation of the religion what does that mean this is a very delicate issue when it comes to the whole u.s iran big picture is that the clergy have a very strong, or the marja, the ones that, that get to that very high uh, uh, level that actually others follow their, their guidance, um, they can continue to reinterpret according to the situation. So currently, um, Iran's leader, the supreme leader, who's also the highest um, religious figure in the country, has a fatwa, a religious order in place that bans the use of nuclear weapons. Obviously, there were no nuclear weapons in the time of the prophet, but it's a modern thing. And the uh, supreme leader at some point issued a fatwa saying that this weapon of mass destruction is against humanity and um, other details on the fatwa. And so it is banned. But that doesn't mean that that can't change. So you can always have fatwas according to the needs of the time um, that precede other fatwas. So right now, I just wanted to explain that right now, um, the official um, strategy of the state is that there is this fatwa. So not only politically, um, Iran, I mean, factually, Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapons program so far with the acknowledgement of U.S. intelligence, CIA director just recently repeated that um, they their program is still a civilian program. It's not um, a nuclear weapons program. And also there's this religious layer um, that basically bans it by the highest leader in the country. That doesn't mean that that can change in years or decades to come. Um, but that's the official policy of the country right now. So I think that's a very important issue, especially considering the fact that Iran is in a way surrounded, not completely, but there are nuclear weapons present around the country. Immediate neighbor to the West is Pakistan, uh, which is a nuclear state. India, also close in the region, is a nuclear state. If there is ever to be a nuclear standoff between India and Pakistan, it will definitely impact Iran geographically. And then also Iran's biggest foe in the region, Israel, who is U.S.'s closest ally, is also a nuclear state. So hmm. these are, you know, issues, geopolitical issues that come into the discussion, the political debate in Iran and the calculations. Um, but just to wrap it up, Iran itself is not a nuclear, does not have a nuclear weapons program yet. And 
to add a little bit of personal opinion, I also agree with Alicia um, or basically the general movement that I think these weapons are essentially weapons of mass destruction. And um, I just hope that the world would move uh, towards not just non-proliferation of these weapons, but the disarmament. Because I have this um, somewhat rare perspective that I live in the US and I cover issues from here, but I also listen to voices um, in other countries, especially in Iran. And the perspective, the outlook on the US, which is a top nuclear power in the world, and the only one who's ever used it, um, mm -hmm. is just very different than how Americans in the US see themselves. Yeah. Well, so given given that insight and that perspective, um, and and as you outlined, I mean, basically, if if the bombs start dropping, it's it's kind of we're in an end game, right? It's going to be very hard for for anywhere on Earth to be unaffected by something like that. Um, and so, as you outlined, I think that the the idea of there being a religious edict, the fatwa that 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 says we're not we're not going there with the development of the weapons makes sense because you're 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 as as the phrase goes it's like a mutually insured destruction right uh, of um given the fact that both sides have would have these weapons of the ones that are that are most antagonistic to each other so i'm curious if in the in the uh uh the media that you read is there a picture painted by the ayatollah by the leadership in in iran um of of what the world would look like if the iranian people were you know forced to develop and employ these these weapons i mean not to get into like eschatology and sort of a end time scenario but but is is there i'm, I'm just curious what that what that picture looks like if they would actually be pushed to that is that something that they discuss no i haven't seen anything to that extent at least in the in the mainstream that i follow but there's just this very clear um at least official explanation that these are you know mass destruction weapons in a way evil um and it's not something that we as a country, meaning Iran as a country or a nation, and especially as an Islamic uh, Republic, are going to pursue. Now, with that caveat that a fatwa can always be uh, topped off with another fatwa, but it's right. not just something that happens every year. So this may very well remain the policy of the state for years and decades to come. This adds sort of an, a more, uh, an assurance for the more religious and more traditional segments of the society for whom the more religious, um, you know, religious teachings are even above law or the policies of the state. So this is to ensure in a way from that perspective to bringing that part of constituency in and just make sure that uh, this remains the official policy of the state and has the support of the religious communities as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, this—I mean, this is where I think it's—it's it's interesting to to understand the influences between uh, religious leadership and political leadership. Where do those things diverge? Where do they really come together?
Um, Alicia, for you, so from from the perspective of of um, your organization FCNL, um, what what is the re moral responsibility of the U.S. Um, in responding to this this threat um, between Ukraine and and Russia? Um, and I mean, for that matter, you know, in terms of in terms of um, uh, the U.S.'s participation in 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 pursuing uh, the Iran nuclear deal, um, what does leading by example look like, and and what what are you advocating for? Yeah, so I think um, you know the top priority and and sort of the moral responsibility is really to do whatever we can to keep a bad situation from getting worse. Um, this is, you know, in Ukraine, it's a brutal, devastating war. And I think sometimes there's a um, sort of a, a misidentification of, of pacifism, like being against war and violence with pacifism, uh, you know, not doing anything. And um, that is definitely not true that there are, you know, peace building is an active, <laughs> an active thing that, that you do. It's not just waiting around for, for things to happen. Um, but there's really this urgent need to de-escalate the conflict, provide off-ramps so that there's a way to get out of this that doesn't just lead to a nuclear exchange, um, and, and to make sure that there's uh, space for diplomacy. And I think something that, that we deal with a lot in, in U.S. foreign policy um, is that oftentimes the, the push to do something means force. There's sort of the, the singular um, application of, of doing something. Um, but a lot of the kinds of things that are being talked about in terms of doing something, which is, you know, sending weapons, calling for no fly zones, could really just escalate the situation and jeopardize the lives of more people. Um, my colleagues have, have written some really helpful pieces on this. Um, I'll just reference our website, which is fcnl.org, um, where you can see, you know, sort of what, what the policy analysts are, are talking about and lobbyists are talking about with Ukraine and Russia. Um, but that's really, you know, I think the the sort of not uh, compound a bad situation is is one of the important things that that we're um, really holding up. I think uh, we also really see a, a moral responsibility to learn from this experience, assuming that we get through it, um, and and to use this as an example of why nuclear abolition is so important. Um, you know, I you referenced uh, sort of the the Cold War generation. I was very young during the end of the Cold War, but I remember very clearly being terrified of nuclear war and just like waiting for that to mm. happen. And, and and that really being, and I've talked to other people who sort of are at a similar age group of like that being a very formative experience. And I think, you know, in the last 30 or 40 years that that has felt much less present for people. And and this is, you know, it's, it's feeling very present now. <laughs> um, you know, things that, that maybe people didn't think they had to be afraid of in quite the same way they're they're afraid of again and um you know fear is is not really a good motivator generally but i do think that um you know this helps make the case for why treaties like the iran nuclear deal are so important why treaties on the prohibition of nuclear weapons um are so important why these international agreements that say you know we don't think this should ever be something that that we have to face um is important. Um, you know, I think we also have a moral responsibility to help all of the, the people who are being displaced from this crisis in Ukraine, um, you know, whether they're displaced within the country or, or with other countries. 
um, and, and looking at the ways that we can help with aid and, and humanitarian relief. This is a, a massive refugee crisis um, that, that's being created and, and, you know, has intersections with, um, you know, other policy areas in terms of how, um, how, we, how we address migration. Um, and then the, the last... And the, yeah. and the, uh, the American Friends Service Committee is another Quaker organization, right, that's helping with that side of things. Yeah, with, uh, so the, with refugees. yeah American Friends Service Committee is a separate organization that, that is more focused on the sort of direct service side of things. Um, they were actually mm-hmm. one of one of the Quaker organizations uh, that received the Nobel Peace Prize in the aftermath of, of World War II. That is also part of part of our history as a, as a faith of that direct service. So what does the world look like when we start to use these weapons and 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 where does the Quaker community fit into that scenario? I mean, we already live in a world where the, these have been used. I mean, we live in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and we, as Nagar said, you know, are the only uh, country to have actually employed a, a nuclear weapon. And and really, you know. I think once once you you get into the hypotheticals, um, you're sort of in a new era, new new frame of reference. So really, our focus is putting all of the energy that we can into preventing that from happening. Um, you know, no one wins in a nuclear war, and so it's it's really about um, how do we how do we make sure that that doesn't happen. Negar, coming back to you in terms of in terms of ways forward, um, particularly when it comes to the situation um, with. Ukraine and Russia and how that influences um, also discussions with Iran and the U.S. Where do you see the connection points there and, and how one might um, motivate uh, an escalation um, in the situation in Iran? Well, I see some very interesting connections. I'm not a Russia or a Ukraine expert, but from a global perspective, um, I think there are two sort of opposing takeaways. One points to the fact that Ukraine did at some point have nuclear weapons, even though they were Soviet nuclear weapons, but hosted in Ukraine and they gave them up. Um, And there's this discussion that, oh, look, this is what happens to you when you have these weapons and give them up and sort of a lesson Mm. for others that you should develop your own or if you have them, you shouldn't give them up. I think the opposing argument, which I agree with more, and then this goes back again to our conversation and and some of the points that Alicia made, is that it's actually the nuclear weapons, the Russia's nuclear weapons that are enabling uh, this form of aggression or invasion and a sense of impunity um, that you can you know, go in uh, into a country, invade a country so violently, have almost the entire world oppose it and nobody essentially being able to do anything, including the world's largest superpower with the biggest, most advanced military in human history, which is the United States, because on the other side, there is the existence of, of these nuclear weapons. So in a way, and I, I think, I like I said, I... I agree with this up here. I think it makes more sense that um, you can argue, even though nuclear weapons are not being used yet in this war, that this is the enabler. The nuclear weapons in arguments uh, are seen as as a form of defense, as a deterrent. 
Um, but I see it as an enabler. And I think this whole Ukraine crisis is, is showing us new dimensions um, of why I think the world should move into that eventual disarmament. And to add another point, I think there's a strong non-proliferation movement in the world, and that's good. But it's also, again, from the viewpoint of the non-nuclear states or the global south or less uh, powerful countries and societies, uh, especially because the non-proliferation is very much being pushed by the powerful countries who do possess nuclear weapons, it's seen as a bit hypocritical. So I just have, as someone who follows this uh, issue as part of my work, I think it's it's more uh, honest and effective, at least from an image perspective, um, when the movement is towards eventual disarmament and it's not just seen by the ones who don't have this very powerful thing um, as, as an excuse for the ones who do have it um, to just stop others from acquiring it. And, um, you know, it's, it's really the nuclear club is just seen as a club that makes you more powerful and invincible and gives you impunity. And until some possess it, it's just very hard to argue to others who want it that, you know, it's just a bad thing that you shouldn't go after as countries. Mm -hmm. And going back to the Iran issue, again, emphasizing that Iran's program is still civilian, um, but there's always this fear in the discussions that if Iran does ever go for a weapons program, um, that this is then something that its neighbors would want to do. So it won't just be limited to Iran, but it will be, uh, well, Israel already has nuclear weapons, but other powers in the region, Iran's rivals like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, even Egypt, there's been discussions that, you know, they would also argue if, if our rival has it, then why not us? So I think it's just, it's it's a failed argument and um, this global movement of uh, that, that wants to move towards complete disarmament just makes a lot more sense from the viewpoint of those in, in the powerful nuclear armed countries and also from the viewpoint of the of the rest of the world essentially the majority of the countries well as we do every episode um i'd like to hold some time for my guests to ask each other follow-up questions so i'm curious negar do you have any uh questions for alicia about about the things that she's talked about well, I'm just curious, Alicia, if you think, because sometimes the disarmament, I have a lot of respect for the disarmament movement, but I just don't know how realistic it is and if it's just doomed to fail <laughs> um, or, or if you see a clear prospect for, for this to eventually be achieved, at least in our lifetime or maybe after. And then also a, a, a follow-up question to that would be if you think the Ukraine war or the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has had any impact or is going to have long or sh a short or long-term impact on this movement. You know, I think that one of the, the things that is an advantage of working for an organization that is specifically grounded in faith is that we are always trying to balance this question of effectiveness with a question of, of what is the right thing to do and, and the faithful thing to do. Um, and there's there's a quote from the first um, head of the organization, uh, E. Raymond Wilson, that he wrote in a letter in I think it was 1943, just when he took the job of, of you know, 
taking over this this new organization. Um, and he, he, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he basically talked about how, you know, our job is not to be, you know, we need to work for these causes that are not going to happen right away. They won't be one now, but but they can't be one unless we start working for them now. And so it was this very sort of long-term view um, or, you know, Mother Teresa talking about we're not called to be effective, we're called to be faithful. Um, and, and so, you know, I think FCNL tries to to balance those things. And, and, you know, we do try to say what is the piece of legislation or what's the opening or what what can we do this year, this Congress and this political situation to move towards these these broad goals we have. Um, but we don't let go of those broad goals just because there doesn't seem to be an opening, you know, in, in the immediate future. So I think um, some of it is is laying the groundwork and having the conversations and being ready to jump in the moment that that there is that softening or there is that opportunity um, and, and to have the, the credibility there. Um, and in terms of in terms of Ukraine and, and how that will change the conversation, I really hope it does. Um, because, you know, as I said, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that people who work in nuclear uh, disarmament and, and uh, nonproliferation have been sort of warning about is like getting to that point where, you know, the two countries with the largest combined nuclear arsenals in the world are, you know, any wrong move. <laughs> could send things off in one direction or another. And, and um, I know that, you know, in talking to our, our lobbyists, like there's a lot of concern about intentional nuclear conflict, but there's also a lot of tr- concern about unintentional nuclear conflict, you know, thinking about um, the Cuban Missile Crisis or something like that, where, you know, a- as we've been saying, the mere presence of these weapons in the conversation creates all of these new concerns. And, um you know, I think it can be difficult sometimes to, to think about these problems in the abstract when they're not in front of us. And I think the, the Ukraine-Russia situation provides a really concrete example of, of the danger. And I hope that that, you know, helps move those conversations forward in, in terms of what the U.S. can do. Hmm. Alicia, do you have a, a follow-up question for Nagar? Yeah, I um, this is a, a little less specific, but, you know, something that, you know, with this long-term view and also working on all of these policies that can be really difficult is, is how, is, is maintaining hope and, and sort of motivating yourself to keep going. And that's a question I think FCNL often gets about, you know, how do you keep doing this work when you're basically working for the same thing you've been working for, for almost 80 years. Um, So I, I'm curious from your perspective and the work that you do sort of what motivates you to do the work and, and where do you find the hope in it? That's a great question. Um, so I have been doing this work for almost two decades now, more professionally for a decade, but I've also seen um, instances, but specifically both in Iran and interestingly also in the U.S., I've seen instances of great political change, which essentially is moments that you realize that um, hope can eventually lead to to a degree of change. So first, as a teenager, um, as a high schooler in Tehran, after about two, 
two decades of the Islamic Republic, sort of very repressive, both politically and socially, um, years, uh, almost a decade of war. So I grew up in Tehran during the Iran-Iraq war, and I have memories of um, planes, Iraqi planes, going over uh, over Tehran, the city, and essentially dropping bombs, and you would go into shelters and then come back up and, and try to look around to see which neighbor or neighborhood uh, was hit with a bomb. So going from that and then the post-war era of, of very, um, you know, closed political and social space to the 19, to the mid nineties, um, the almost miraculous election of a reformist politician. This is Mohammad Khatami and sort of starting a very interesting, uh, era of reform in the Islamic Republic. I remember it was an extremely hopeful time. You could feel it on the street. You could feel it even inside schools as as high schoolers. As a 16 year old, I was I was allowed to uh, vote. So actually, I participated in that election. It, that's how my political life started. And then um, fast forwarding to I would say the election of Barack Obama when I was here in the U.S., again, as a young college student, that I saw an immense, um, you know, environment of hope that wasn't just in the U.S., you know, sort of the world was looking up to this, again, miraculous um, thing happening, um, an African-American, a young person with, you know, such interesting views and so much hope. Um, being elected. And then also right after that, um, the 2009 movement, the Green uh, Movement, the disputed uh, presidential election um, in 2009 in Iran, which in a way it changed the course of my life too. I've been pushed into forced exile since then. I haven't visited Iran, but I was living here, so I haven't been able to go back. But there was almost a year of continuous protests with millions of people sort of not just taking to the street, but remaining on the street despite a very brutal crackdown um, and death, essentially, for, for dozens of protesters. But that was also a very hopeful time, you know, and then you're looking at the people who participate in that, um, essentially realizing that they have hope for for something that could change. So these have been, I think, moments, it goes up and down. Then, you know, you you live in this country where I'm, I'm living and then you see the era of someone like Donald Trump and everything that happened with that. But I think that up and down uh, sort of cycles and, and these instances of great change um, are something that give you hope and then also give you assurance that it can come be repeated again and again. And I think um, that's just something that has been keeping me going. And people like yourself, the great work of people like both of you. Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm gonna hold hold on on being mad on at Alicia for stealing my last question. I was gonna have a nice tie tie into Nauru's and what gives you hope in the new year. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate that answer so much. That was that was really great. Um, I, I I'll turn it on Alicia then and just ask similarly, like what what is it that's that's giving you hope and and what what would you like to see in in the coming year? I think the main thing for me is the community of people who do this work. Um, you know, I think 
it, as I said, it can, you know, there are definitely days where you feel overwhelmed and like everything's terrible. And, um, you know, I think it's really important to be with people who can give you a perspective and, and sort of holds you up when you, when you can't do that. And then you, you do the same for them. Um, and I think that's something I've gotten out of, of my faith community and, and Quakers, but also, you know, the, the people I work with at FCNL and, and the other people in, in our, in our community. Um, you know, I think, um, in terms of, of going forward, I mean, I think that, I think there are opportunities to like have deeper conversations about the structures and the ways that we have gotten here, um, around nuclear issues, but around other things. And I think, you know, one, one conversation that I think is really important to have is, is thinking about the ways that, you know, the West and the U S have responded to the war in Ukraine, um, and, and the people displaced by that conflict and, and how that differs from the way that we're aware of, you know, the, the war in Yemen or, you know, other violence and conflict in other places, um, that don't involve white Europeans. And I, I think that there's also some opportunities for, for reflection and sort of maybe greater understanding of the, the challenges of conflict and, and what happens in conflict, um, that that involve people that don't look like someone in, in the US um, and, and how we respond to that. So I, I think that's something that um, I hope people are ready for because it, it feels like that's a really important um, thing. You know, I hope people don't just sort of, okay, the crisis is over, let's move on and go back to, to how things were. I think, I think, I hope that it prompts some, some real inward looking and, and consideration of um, both what has happened and, and why it happened the way it did. So I, I want to, I want to just invite you, how can people find out more about, about the good work that, that you all are doing? Uh, Alicia, can you um, share about, uh, about FCNL? Yeah, sure. The best place to find us is online. Our website is fcnl.org. I guess one thing I will I will highlight is that we have a really great program that we call advocacy teams, which are people um, in their own communities around the country. Um, I think we're in 41 states now. Um, you know, they're they're really working to build relationships with their members of Congress uh, and and work for this long term change. Um, and the, the focus this year is um, the the conflict in Yemen and, and ending U.S. support for the Saudi um, war there. So, um, you can find that at fcnl.org slash advocacy teams. And don't have to be Quaker nope. to, to sign up to be involved. Nope. You don't have to be a Quaker to think that that's, uh, not something the U S should be doing. <laughs> Great. Nagar, how about, how about you ways that people can, uh, read your writings and, and, uh, find out about, uh, the media that you put out into the world? Well, I'm an independent right now, so I write for different places and I do regular interviews for various channels. I guess the best place to find all of my work in one place would be my website, negarmortazavi.com. I also share everything on Twitter. I have a very active presence on Twitter, again, at negarmortazavi. I also have a podcast on Iran, various social, political, cultural discussions about Iran and Iranians. It's a weekly interview series, basically, and it's um, available on all major podcast platforms. So they can just search for the Iran podcast 
um, and hopefully subscribe and listen. And don't have to be Iranian to get something from that either. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> great, great. Well, thank you both for your time today. And um, yeah, thank you for, for all the great work that you do in the world. My pleasure. Thank you. It was great to see you both, speak to you, and best of luck. Yeah, thank you. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests, Negar Martazavi and Alicia McBride. And as always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow Interfaith-ishronauts, Miranda Hofmeyer and Sue Katzmiller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. If you're listening over at TacomaRadio.org, you can also find our archives of past shows or check us out on your podcast aggregator of choice. And we're coming up on our fourth anniversary with 100 episodes of Interfaith-ish. I'd love to hear what you've learned from our time on the air, including your favorite episodes, favorite guests, new ideas you've learned, and what you've shared with friends. You can send a message to interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Or tag us on social media at interfaithish. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week. Streaming online at tacomaradio.org. That was a radio show called Interfaithish, hosted by Jack Gordon, that airs on Tacoma Radio here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.